BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Podcast and this week's Reporters Roundtable. It's Friday, October 18, around 8.30 a.m. in Washington, D.C., as we look back on a wild, crazy week packed with news. In a phone call, Donald Trump triggered Turkey's war against the Kurds. Then he threatened to destroy Turkey's economy if they didn't stop making war against the Kurds. Then agreed with Turkey to give the Kurds 120 hours to get out of the war zone or else, all of which has driven even Republicans in Congress crazy. Meanwhile, after President Trump denied any quid pro quo with Ukraine, acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney told reporters on camera, of course there is a quid pro quo, deal with it. But just a couple of hours later, he said he didn't really say that. And 12, yes, 12 candidates crowded on stage for the fourth Democratic Party debate, everybody aiming their fire at now frontrunner Elizabeth Warren. Well, here to try to make sense of all of it today, three of Washington's most intrepid political reporters from HuffPost, Jen Bendry. Hi, Jen. Hello. Welcome back. From BuzzFeed, Addie Baird. Hi, Addie. Hi. And joining us from Politico, Chris Catalago. Hi, Chris. Hey, Bill. All right, so let's jump right in. Uh, just yesterday, friends, um, you, you got to run fast to keep up with all of this. Yesterday, uh, Vice President Trump announced a what he called a ceasefire in Syria. But, of course, Turkey right away said, no, this was not a ceasefire. It was merely a pause. Um, Turkey said that they got all the land they wanted, uh, and they gave the Kurds 120 hours to get out of the way. And then Mick Mulvaney called a, new, a press briefing at the White House where he said, yes, of course there was a quid pro quo. Get over it. We do that all the time. A couple of hours later, he came out and said, I never said that. He also announced that the G7 summit, G7 summit was going to be held at Donald Trump's uh, Doral Resort in Miami, but he insisted there was no conflict of interest. Meanwhile, the ambassador to the EU up on the Hill Gordon Sunderland testified that Donald Trump forced him to work with Rudy Giuliani in getting Ukraine to open this investigation. And last night, Donald Trump held a rally in Texas where he said, yeah, of course, I told the Turks to go after the Kurds. It's like school kids. You have to let them fight to get get it out of their system. And this is all very, very good. I mean, what do we make of this? Is this really a ceasefire, Jen? Well, Last night, the Kurds have already been in the news saying that the ceasefire never really lasted. Hours into it, they said that Turkey was already firing on them and there were casualties and um, there were descriptions of ambulances being blocked from the hospitals. And I mean, and they never agreed. The Kurds never agreed to the ceasefire. It sounds like they never agreed to the ceasefire. There was never a clear understanding of where the ceasefire really, what boundaries applied to where it was happening. And... If you think that Mike Pence coming in to try to smooth out this disaster that 
that Trump has caused is going to work, then you're wrong. Because obviously Mike Pence is going to go on TV and say, we made a deal, everything's fine, and then nothing changed. Because you have to remember you can't really trust Erdogan. And you have to remember that Trump already gave the green light to Turkey to do what it's doing. So it is a colossal disaster right now. Didn't Chris, the president, in effect, give Erdogan everything he wanted? I mean, it certainly seems that way. And and uh, yesterday in this announcement, it, it felt very much like a, a classic Trump example where he wanted to be able to kind of claim this victory. He was asked if this was just like a temporary um, freeze and whether he was concerned that this was going to start up again. Obviously, as Jen said, it, it never stopped. Um, and he said, no, I don't think so. You know, the, the, you know, just sort of brushed it aside. So I think I think for him, it's it's clearly more important to just kind of get out there and, and focus on kind of the big picture aspect of it and, and claim that he's he's made this difference or that his administration has. And I think um, obviously the details don't seem to matter as much. So, Eddie, the Kurds, we have to remember and keep reminding ourselves, maybe are the only people who stood by us. Right. In our fight against ISIS, they were the ones they were on the front lines. And um, at one time, we all felt we owed them a debt of gratitude. Even Donald Trump did. The Daily Show put together a little montage of Donald Trump last year talking about the Kurds and this year talking about the Kurds back and forth. Let's listen. We do get along great with the Kurds. We're trying to help them a lot. The Kurds are uh, very well protected. And by the way, they're no angels. Don't forget, that's their territory. We have to help them. I want to help them. Two countries fight over land. That has nothing to do with us. They fought with us. They fought with us. They died with us. They died. We lost tens of thousands of Kurds died fighting ISIS. We're not going to be fighting. We don't want to fight anyway. I don't think there's any reason to. They died for us and with us and for themselves. They've got a lot of sand over there, so there's a lot of sand that they can play with. We, we don't forget. I don't forget. It's time for us to come home. We're not a policing agent. I can tell you that I don't forget. These are great people. As I said, they're not angels. They're not angels. Take a look. With friends like that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like yeah. it's, it, this is one of those classic Trump things. And, and, you know, every once in a while you kind of see a video like this that compares back and forth, you know, Trump talking now versus what something he said on the campaign trail in 2016. And I personally um, feel like it's a futile exercise to try and apply any logic to this. What I will say is to Chris's point, um, the administration seems to understand that uh, they messed up and wants to find a really easy way to clean this up. And I think that um, one of the reasons that they are trying to quickly, you know, do a ceasefire that's not really a ceasefire and, and send and, and, you know, put Pence out there is that Trump has really pissed off congressional Republicans in a at, in a time when he really needs them. And they stood with him um, on this Ukraine saga um, and they are not standing with him on Syria. Um, Lindsey Graham, who is, of course, one of Trump's usually one of his, you know, biggest defenders, um, has said that this is incredibly dangerous and he's he's really, you know, I, I doubt that this will have um material effect. I don't think that this is going to, um, I don't expect that, you know, Lindsey Graham is going to say that the president should be impeached. Um, but but it is remarkable in this age to have Republicans talking about the president the way that they have been on well, this issue. Jen, Congress is your beat. I mean, the, the vote this week 
354 to 60 in the House. And that includes like 129 Republicans. And every voting. member of Republican leadership. Yeah, so that includes Kevin McCarthy, who is also like Lindsey Graham, always out there defending Trump, even in the most insane, indefensible situations. It's Kevin McCarthy spinning and lying to defend Trump. So that that vote was a, it. It's symbolic. It didn't change anything like from a pragmatic standpoint, but it was a huge diss to Trump. And that's what apparently sent him into a meltdown in the White House when he met with congressional leaders later because he saw a huge rebuke from Republicans. And he's already in a bad place on Syria. He made a huge mistake. He's getting investigated for impeachment. I mean, there's all these bad things piling up. So when you have Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham publicly voting and speaking out against what he's doing. That is like the biggest insult to someone like Donald Trump. So Chris, maybe, I mean, the Mueller stuff didn't do it. The call to Zelensky didn't do it. Maybe Syria would be the crack in the dam of Republican support for Donald Trump. I mean, what I really wonder with these congressional Republicans is, you know, they don't speak up on so many of these other issues. How much of this is the foreign policy itself and how much of it is is sort of giving them leeway to come out and sort of take it to Trump and, and put that under that broader umbrella of them being sort of critical and serving their mm-hmm. oversight role. And so it may be it, the opportunity they were looking for. Exactly. Yeah, it could be a way for them. A lot of these folks face, uh, you know, are, are going to face really tough reelections um, next year. And I think they're looking for ways to distance themselves uh, from the president if they could do it over policy um uh, that's a lot more helpful than doing it over um ukraine or, or the, even this impeachment even if some of them end up voting for it and and you know more comes out in this investigation so i also think oh, i was just going to add really ahead, quickly please that, jump in anytime that republicans you know the the rare moments when congressional republicans have been comfortable criticizing the president have, have often been about foreign policy mm. and they're they're more comfortable sort of distancing themselves from the president on foreign policy than domestic issues and i think that you know to chris's point they kind Safe. of see it as maybe less likely to rile up the uh, safer ground yeah now as all of us know because we used to go to the briefings there are no more briefings at the white house all the more unusual when there is a briefing, and all the more, even more unusual, when it's the chief of, well, acting chief of staff of the White House, who calls his own briefing um, to make an announcement about Doral. We'll get in the G7, we'll get into that in a minute. But um, to tell reporters, in effect, you're damn right that there's a quid pro quo. We do it all the time. Here's Mick Mulvaney. That he also mentioned to me in the past the, 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 the corruption related to the DNC server. Absolutely. No question about that. Um, but that's it. And that's why we held up the money. But to be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we do we do that all the time with foreign policy. Yeah. Good for John Carl from the from ABC. Get over it. Mulvaney actually said, Jen. And then later he said, I didn't say that. It's like this is classic. White House disaster mode. I mean, he's doing exactly what Trump does. He says the quiet thing out loud that they're not supposed to say out loud. And then they go back and tell you later that they didn't say the thing that you literally just watched them say on television. But, you know, to say that about a telephone call is one thing. To say it about a news conference on national television. They're just, uh, it's, (laughs) they're a mess. They don't know what they're doing. They're just doing this by the seat of their pants. The president has been saying things on live television, admitting to a 
all kinds of things flatly on television that are crimes. And so the fact that his chief of staff had a press conference and went ahead and mentioned another admission of a crime and then later said it didn't happen when we all saw it, it's just they just say things, they put the things out in in plain sight that are illegal or unethical. And then later they say they did not say them. That's that's what they do. Well, uh, Eric Swalwell, former Democratic presidential candidate, <laughs> <laughs> said yesterday uh, at a, that this amounts to a confession. I mean, they've been confessing things all along. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> That's just, what they do. <laughs> I mean, from the beginning of of this Ukraine saga, um, you know, Rudy Giuliani went on CNN and in the space of about two minutes denied, denied and, and then said, "Yes, of course, we asked Ukraine." And so, I, I do. I, I, I um, at this press conference happened uh, right before the House was voting yesterday, and. Um, so, you know, the House came in for votes and the, all of the intelligence committee members had been in the skiff for the deposition. And um, I started to ask them, you know, did you see Mulvaney's press conference? And, and they said, no, you know, what happened? And um, I would try to sum it up for them. And I wished so bad I could have, like, taken video of their faces as I described, like, what had just happened. Um, and, yeah, you know, Swalwell's not the only one. I, I told – I was talking to uh, Jackie Spear. said, you know, do you think that Mulvaney should testify? And she goes, I think Mulvaney should go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes, "Don't quote me on that." And I was just, I just like gave her a look. And now like, you're of quoting her in a yeah, podcast. Right. Of course, I was going to quote her on that. It was, it was on the record. <laughs> but well, I mean, it's just yes, they're crimes. <laughs> well, here, here's a question I have. So there are no briefings except Donald Trump wants to be the spokesperson all the time. Is there any way, Chris, that Mick Mulvaney went out there to the podium without Donald Trump telling him, "You've got to go out there to the podium and 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 clear this all up." I mean, I mean he would not have gone out there on his own. Yeah, would you agree? There's very little chance of that. The thing, it, it, go back to the timing of it with some of these House members talking about it, I think is important because there's probably a lot we don't understand about the, the timeline and Trump's reaction to it, given that he was kind of distracted with what was going on abroad. Um, he was in Texas. He was getting ready to do this rally. So I think his reaction to how mm. Mulvaney did in the end is still going to probably come out today and and we'll see um yeah, you, so you think the acting chief of staff may soon be the former I mean, chief of staff so i was just saying as we started this that i opened my phone this morning and we have a pre-write already with yeah. the headline acting white house chief of staff <laughs> mulvaney fired <laughs> but it's just a pre-write because you just it could be happening as we're film as we're taping i mean it, things are happening so fast that he could be fired or he could be promoted. I mean, th- th- you just don't know what they're doing over there. Well, 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 you buried the lead here. So what you're saying is that people actually write stories about something that they think is going to happen before it happens in case it happens. Of course. <laughs> there you go. Fake news? No. Well, I will say, I was standing next to Jen as she opened it on her phone, and all I saw was Mick Mulvaney fired, and I started to have a heart attack. <laughs> There was a time in our newsroom where I think we had uh, pre-writes for almost every member of the cabinet. Um, so, yeah. No. We have that. We yeah. have lots of pre-writes. Yeah. No, I can just like the obits are written mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, for, for the most Absolutely. part for people that they think someday might die. <laughs> <laughs> Even Henry Kissinger someday. <laughs> yeah, might. Uh, so, so um, 
well, I guess if we're talking about people resigned, then you had the pre-write ready for Rick Perry? We had that ready too. Yeah. We've had that one ready for days because <laughs> that one's been all up and down, like different yeah. bits of information coming so out. So what does it mean, Rick Perry resigning? I mean, does anybody know anything that he did in the last three years as energy secretary? I mean, I didn't. I can't think of. I don't know, but I know he's now being tied to the Ukraine mess. That's so right. if that's the only reason I can see he would suddenly resign. That's what it looks like, Chris. I mean, is he, that Rudy he did, Giuliani's chased another. Yeah, he, he rabbit down until the hole. that until that started to kind of trickle out. We still obviously don't know the extent of his involvement in it. He he was kind of the 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 uh, the case of of the cabinet member who could keep their head down to some degree, and and um, I. I Again, don't know whether that was by design. He probably knew enough about um, uh, Trump and the way he operated to to feel like that was the best way to go about it. I mean, it's sort of like the less you're in the news in this administration, the better you're doing. And and Addy, the president said yesterday, uh, "Oh, he's a good man." By the way, we already have his successor chosen. And uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, <laughs> well, come on, Rick, what are you waiting for? Get out the door, right? I just, I. I, I just want to zoom out briefly for your listeners and remind everyone that I don't know either what Rick Perry has been doing all this time. But when Rick Perry was running for president, this was the department he forgot he wanted to eliminate. So that really, I feel like, encapsulates the vibe of the whole thing. Well, I think I think that does say it all. There was another meeting at the White House today. Um, Donald Trump claimed he never called the meeting and he didn't want to go to the meeting, but it was in the cabinet room <laughs> with the Democratic and the Republican leadership of Congress. Uh, and it amounted to a photograph of uh, that the president tweeted out of Nancy Pelosi standing up and pointing her finger at Donald Trump, which Donald Trump says just shows how crazy Nancy Pelosi is. Jen, is that the way everybody sees that same photo? Well, no, because that photo, of course, blew up and backfired in what he was trying to do. What most people see is a powerful woman standing up and confronting the president who deserves to be confronted. The and that only video, woman in the room. In a, in a long table full of white men, old white men sitting there and Pelosi standing up in her blue dress, pointing in his face and him just sort of, you know, sinking back in his seat. I, I mean, what's hilarious about that is, well, it's hilarious and like, in a sad way <laughs> because yeah. of the state of affairs. But that picture was meant to be an insult to her and to show her looking crazy. But within like an hour of him tweeting it out, Pelosi took that photo and made it her background photo on her Twitter page and on her Facebook page and just blew it up as her as a celebratory moment. Yeah. Because kept, it shows that she's not afraid of him. Uh, I kept thinking of the phrase, nevertheless, she persisted. <laughs> If we remember Mitch McConnell saying that and about I, Elizabeth Warren. And I have to and, say about that meeting, a thing that really stands out, and you are probably going to say more about this, but there were so many moments that uh, from the readout of that meeting, so many things that that Pelosi and Hoyer came out and said that happened. For example, that, you know, Pelosi said the president had a meltdown in the meeting and it was sad and I'm going to be praying for him tonight. Those were the same exact attacks that Trump hours later tried to use against her, which is bizarre. A, he said that she had a meltdown, that it was mm -hmm. sad and that we need to pray for her. And it, A, so A, that's very bizarre. <laughs> but B, it is exactly the thing that Pelosi has said he does, which is true, which is he 
throws at you the very thing that he is every time. And it just like puts up a mirror. He, if he, if he, if he has a meltdown, he's going to say you had a meltdown. And I, and all the time that he's been throwing out his attacks at her and other people, I don't think I've seen a more clear cut moment where he straight up (laughs) in a nonsensical way, just said the exact same thing back that was just said to him as if he had just come up with that himself. It's very bizarre. You know, Chris, I cannot, I was trying to thinking about this. I can't imagine a Barack Obama telling John Boehner at a meeting like that, you're a third rate politician or George Bush telling Dick Gephardt that. I mean, Donald Trump, the presidency has sunk to a new low. Yeah. I mean, part of it is this has gone on for so long now that you can't say that, I mean, there occasionally these stories crop up that, you know, is Trump losing it? Well, this is just who Trump is. But I think that picture was sort of the, you know, another example of um, uh, Trump and, you know, the folks working with him thinking like they have the goods. This is really going to like move public opinion here, sort of like the Ukraine transcript, right? He thought he yeah. had this thing that was going to exonerate him and make him look great. And everyone was going to Which, uh, by the way, why did yeah. they think that? Exactly. I still and don't this, understand why that, they that did that, why they released oh, yeah. that transcript. I mean, to think that there's no one there around him um, who could either say or uh, predict how that picture would play. Um, it might it might be getting a lot of sort of retweets and likes on right wing Twitter, but but to to the average person out there, to the normal person, it doesn't so, look good. So, Andy, th- this this photo of Nancy Pelosi with Donald Trump, I mean, that, this look could be the new Rosie Riveter poster, just about right. I mean, the I, strong woman. The Pelosi on. people love it, and like Pelosi stands love it, and um, she had a a press conference yesterday, and we asked her you know, about this this photo and, and what was being mm-hmm. said uh, in that moment. And she said, you know, I think that was the moment I was excusing myself from the room. And she kind of laughed and, and uh, you know, very Nancy Pelosi of her. She goes, I think that was the moment I, I was saying all roads with you lead to Putin. Um, so, you know, she she sees this photo as like a great capture of her as this, you know, defiant leader, which I mean, like objectively, it kind of is like it's just it's just um, I mean, yeah, they love it. Yeah. Well, we're just about halfway through the week here and a little more than halfway through the podcast. Uh, let's take a quick break from Eddie Baird and uh, Jen Bendry and Chris Catalongo, and then we'll be right back. Thanks again for joining us today. Today's roundtable brought to you by the Iron Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women of the Iron Workers Union. They are building America's communities today under the leadership of President Eric Dean and ready to rebuild America's infrastructure tomorrow. If Congress ever gets around to talking about infrastructure again, that is, we uh, salute them for their good work and thank them for their support of the podcast. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued 
at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Well, the uh, G7 meeting, uh, we're back on our uh, roundtable here with Addy Baird from BuzzFeed, Jen Bendery from HuffPost, and Chris Catalago from Politico. The G7, next meeting of the G7, the United States is the host, and we looked for the only and the best property in the entire 50 states where to hold this meeting. And of course, number one came up is uh, President Trump's own property, the Doral Country Club in Miami, Florida. Uh, no conflict of interest here, Chris. None at all. And and this, uh, the idea that this might happen had come up before um, people talked at about Donald it. Trump's suggestion. Yes. And so reported this morning and at a meeting in the White House. He said, well, let's have it at the Doral. Exactly. So it's it's not a surprise for two reasons. One, because um, of course this would happen. And two, because we've kind of heard uh, the idea of it before. Um, but I think that just the juxtaposition with Trump at every rally now, every public opportunity has of slamming Joe Biden and Hunter Biden over uh, their, um, you know, alleged corruption and, and all the money that Hunter Biden was earning and how he was, um, you know, totally unqualified for taking these these roles and now having, um, you know, the U.S. basically direct uh, ha- having the G7 at the president's property just does not make sense. I mean, the fact that he can make these two arguments at the same time and uh, people don't have an issue with it is. So, Jen, yeah, I got um, Mick Mulvaney says they're going to do this at cost. They're not going to make any money on this. Yeah, Mick Mulvaney was making the argument that he won't really profit mm-hmm. at all from hosting the G7 at his hotel because they'll charge at market rate. But that is literally the definition of a business like, that you <laughs> that you host. You have people come stay at your property and pay you. So, yes, he does benefit from this. <laughs> and we've almost gotten to the point where people don't care. I saw this morning a thousand. It's been a thousand and two days maybe of this presidency. One third of that time has been spent uh, a number of days, one third of the days of the president has been spent at one of his properties, either Bedminster or Mar-a-Lago or Sterling, Virginia. And um, we do have the emoluments clause and Addy, nobody says beans. I mean, you know, there was a, I think it was I think it was Katie Hill, uh, who's a freshman Democrat, uh, who said yesterday, you know, violating the emoluments clause in full public view is still violating the emoluments clause. <laughs> and um, the, the White House sort of seems to think that if they're like, you know, they, they hold a press conference to say that it will, that the G7 is coming to a Trump property and, you know, they're, you know, doesn't, they're going to say over and over that Trump's not making any money. Um, but uh, it's still violating the emoluments clause just in full public view. What yeah. I don't understand is, is this just tied up in court? Because clearly he has violated it so many times by now, and you hear people complain about it, and it feels like nothing's happening. There is still, but it must be tied up in court because otherwise everyone's just watching it happen, and it's fine. 
Yeah, to my memory, which may be sketchy, there were two two court cases. One of them was thrown out because the parties didn't have standing, and the other one, I think, is still moving through the courts. I did, mm-hmm. You know, double-check, Google it, but I, that's what I, I recall. Two other quick uh, topics uh, before we round up here and get your favorite stories of the week. Um, there is the impeachment inquiry still underway. Uh, Turkey and um, Marlaga, I mean, uh, Doral could have took the headlines away. Uh, from it this week, but it's going on behind closed doors. So my question to each of you is, is the impeachment inquiry like still on track? And when do you think it's going to wrap up? Uh, I've been here. uh, Congressional Democrats, I've been hearing, uh, many colleagues have also been hearing, they want to wrap up by Thanksgiving. Meaning vote. Yep. House House vote by Thanksgiving. Meaning there will be articles of impeachment on the floor. floor. That's what they want. Uh Jen? Yeah, that's what the word is. And then the Senate is already preparing to have a trial, which was also unclear for a little while. But Mitch McConnell has said, yes, we will follow our constitutional duty and have a trial. He didn't say how long it will be or how they'll, you know, how they'll act during it. If he'll, uh, the, the thinking is that he's going to try to wrap it up really quickly. But I think he said six days. And the the plan right now is to potentially have it go between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Do you agree, Chris? I mean, from an outside perspective, not being on the Hill, I, I think that Democrats have handled this like really well. I think they've tried that, you know, the slow amount of information has come out in terms of like what they're doing. They've tried to like keep people following along in terms of the process. They've tried to make it look like, you know, this is not a rush to judgment. This is something that we're we're digging down and getting the, the evidence for. So, you know, so far, I haven't seen any kind of major leaks on this thing. So it, it seems like they uh, have this process. Uh, going in the way they want to. And um, yeah, I mean, if it happens by the fall, one of the potential fallouts of it or or uh, maybe saving graces for some of these 2020 presidential candidates could be, uh, y- you know, what goes on in the Senate and whether anyone kind of takes that star turn um, in, that, uh, in that hearing. Well, well interestingly, um, the McConnell explained in uh, the Republican lunch on Thursday, I believe, maybe Wednesday, that that senators will have to be silent because they act as the jury and they're going to have to be there six days a week um, and they're going to start at 12. Like the, he, he laid out some very specific rules they are going to have to be there six mm. days a week. They're going to have to be there at 1230 and they have to be silent. So I think it it could actually be like mm. a campaign killer for some of these sort of mid-tier presidential candidates in the Senate who are left, who have to be in D.C. six days a week silently. Oh, interesting. Right. Well, that's a good segue into the 20th. If the in- impeachment inquiry is rolling along, so is the Democratic presidential primary, which again, maybe was getting more of a backseat because of breaking news. Uh, but we had the big debate Tuesday night in uh, Westerville, Ohio, um, how do things stand after the debate? Everybody went after Elizabeth Warren. Uh, were there any clear, any clear winner, any clear loser, um, anybody who sort of knocked themselves out of competition Tuesday night? How do you read it post the Tuesday debate? Jen? Well, there's always a little bit of shifting after these debates. Um, Kamala Harris seemed to kind of disappear, she, it's, which is remarkable given how strong she came out in the beginning. Um, also, probably the most notable thing was that for the first time, it it appeared all the candidates are now treating Elizabeth Warren like the front runner versus Joe Biden, who was there too, but didn't really stand out. Elizabeth Warren definitely was bearing the brunt of attacks from everybody, and uh, you also saw Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg try to 
stand out more as like the centrist Democrats in the mix. And they both went hard after Elizabeth Warren again. So there's some there's definitely some re rejiggering of, of who, you know, the the totem pole of who's the most um, uh, popular and who's rising and who's falling. But to me, there were several moments that were interesting, but watching Joe Biden's up there is just, it makes me uncomfortable at this point because he's just slipping and you never know what he's going to say. And he's got this tendency to say things that aren't true or to just say something that backfires. And what he did in this debate in one moment was he made this claim that he's the only one on stage who got, has gotten anything big done, which was, as he's standing right next to Elizabeth Warren, who then proceeded to talk about how she stood up this little agency called the CFPB, mm-hmm. which she created and, and like from the bottom up. And and he went he actually like attacked her and said, you know, I helped you get the votes for that. I helped you get the votes for that. And and it was just uncomfortable. And she said she looked surprised and said to the cameras, you know, I'd like to thank President Obama for his help. <laughs> so th- there's just weird scuffling that yeah. happens. But that was to me one of the most uncomfortable power struggle moments and it flopped for joe biden i know you were writing about this immediately afterwards for politico Mm -hmm. chris your take any clear i i mean one of the things that stood out to me was obviously uh warren was kind of in the in the firing line i think she did pretty well deflecting a lot of that defending her positions um, including on health care but i think there's still this dynamic in these debates that when you're in that position it's hard to kind of emerge in the end looking like you had this great debate. There's almost like nothing you can do when this pylon happens in terms of the impression people have from it. So I think if this continues in later debates, the other thing I think people have not really put their finger on with these is, you know, you did have Klobuchar being more aggressive, uh, Pete Buttigieg being more aggressive, thinking that maybe if Biden is in fact falling, that this is going to be this sort of ideological shift and they're going to emerge as this moderate. But Biden's base is like older voters and black voters. And if the idea that Pete Buttigieg and mm-hmm. Klobuchar are going to be the inheritors of that base, uh, is, you know, sort of um, is not totally believable at this point. And so you look down the road and, and, and where do those folks go? Well, Elizabeth Warren could be a more attractive candidate for, for both of those groups that that are uh, uh, solidly behind, still solidly behind Joe Biden, um, or one of these other candidates that's uh, not doing as well right now. I mean, you could go down the list. Um, maybe Biden hangs around. Maybe he still wins South Carolina after the first three. Or maybe it's Cory Booker, who has certainly not done well so far. Um, or even so, Kamala Harris, who's stumbled you know, over and over and over, but she's still in this thing. And so that, I think, is, is the question for me right now, it, it seems like the sort of immediate reporting that happens with these things can be a little bit lazy in terms of like looking at, so well, this is still, moderate. Still fluid. Yes. I was just going to say that, that I think Sanders had a big night when he needed one. Um, you know, obviously he, he had a heart attack recently. There were some questions about his health. Um, you know, I felt like if he, he had coughed on stage, oh, absolutely, it would, it would have been like all over, right? Yeah. Everybody was watching. They were so nervous in, right. the, in the hall. And I think about. that he he seemed present and energized oh, and yeah. healthy and there. But I think 
Um, almost more importantly, they rolled out uh, the um, endorsements of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar. And Ocasio-Cortez in particular um, is, uh, you know, I would argue, the, especially for the progressive wing, the biggest endorsement that any candidate has gotten in the 2020 race so far. She has such a sway. She has such a following. Um, you know, our one of my editors always calls her like the most famous person in the world right now, which isn't crazy um <laughs> and you know i just think that for the sanders campaign that was that was huge for them and they really i think he had a good debate and and on top of it um the attention of of these endorsements of these really famous you know beloved young progressive women was was huge for him uh, just a quick follow-up on that uh i was talking to faz shakir who is bernie's uh campaign manager after the debate they were very pleased with with his performance obviously and said this proves that bernie's strong as ever and in it all the way to the end and and i was saying it seemed that the the running theme of the whole debate was go bold or be sort of pragmatic right and so you had bernie and elizabeth let's go we got to go bold and biden and klobuchar chris as you pointed out and pete Buttigieg and amy klobuchar were saying let's let's be big but let's not go crazy right but the and and fashik here said no bill the choice is be bold or no go bold or go home that, sounds like fast that's, <laughs> that's the way they cast it right and the whole the running theme but uh great great conversation we didn't get to all the topics of the week we never do because so much is going on this week but we always want to leave time for uh your favorite stories and mine of the week something that caught your attention could be one of the things we talked about or could not be um where do we start who's ready um Jen, you're on your phone. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> mine's more of a favorite quote of the week. Good. Um, among other things, Trump said that General Mattis <laughs> oh, was the most overrated yes. general ever because, yes. of course, he would say something like that. So I see that Mattis was asked about it at a dinner last night, and he said, Trump called me an overrated general, but I don't mind. He called Meryl Streep an overrated actress. <laughs> So I guess I'm the Meryl Streep of generals. <laughs> I haven't seen them. That's amazing. Oh, no. That was at the Al Smith dinner last yeah. night uh, in New York, where General Mattis also said that uh, I got my spurs on the battlefield. Donald Trump got his spurs at a doctor's office. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Referring back to the bone spurs. He was in good form last night, General Mattis. Oh, man. Addie, top that. <laughs> um, so I my when I was thinking about my favorite story of the week, um, I I settled on um, in a podcast, actually, that I've been listening to. Um, mm. It's called Dolly Parton's America. Nice. The <laughs> first episode came out this week. I think it's going to be like a nine part uh, mm -hmm. podcast, but it's just incredible. I love Dolly Parton. Um, and, and the podcast is sort of it's it's both an interview with Dolly. And um, mm. in the first episode, she talks in a way I've, I've really kind of never heard her before. She talks about um, a time in her life when she was considering when she was contemplating suicide and mm. like the way that she really it, it's a side of her that we don't really hear that often um and you know it also kind of expands out into this question of of you know how we can look at america through dolly parton's music and through her life and it's just oh, a cool. treat it's that's wonderful awesome. dolly parton's america yeah that's good so that's good. good i have to listen to that how about you chris so mine's gonna be incredibly boring i i did not do any sort of extracurricular for this one uh, but I think it's going to be instructive for the okay. next year in politics. So of these uh, uh, 
potentially vulnerable House members. Um, you've had, I think, 75% so far uh, sitting on a million dollars. Um, I just think there's so much talk right now about whether Elizabeth Warren's gambit uh, to do the, the mm. smaller uh, dollar donors is going to pay off and look at all this money that the RNC has. And I think people are underestimating how much money is there on the Democratic side and how much will be there for the um, uh, eventual nominee. And and I think the, the money that these House uh, incumbents on the Democratic side are raising, um, oh, uh, I think 30 or something had 500,000 over the last quarter is is just sort of the first indication we're seeing of, of, uh, of the idea that uh, the RNC and Trump are just going to swamp everyone with money is, is premature. I saw your article uh, on that this morning on Politico.com, which I recommend everybody, and the amount of money that the Democrats are raising for the, in their war chest to hold on to the House and expand their uh, margin in the House uh, is pretty strong. Well, guys, my favorite story of the week is uh, Tuesday night when the Nats swept the Cardinals <laughs> to put Washington's baseball team in the World Series for the first time in 86 years, think about this. The last time it happened, FDR was the president throughout the first ball. We had only had one world war. Uh, there were only 48 states, and gasoline was selling for 18 cents a gallon. <laughs> that's how, really did your homework. That's how long ago. <laughs> I wish said. everyone could see Bill's face right now. I've really never seen him quite this tickled. <laughs> I'm so excited. And the other thing I'm excited about is that for Washington, this to me, this transcends baseball. I mean, it says something. It lifts up Washington. I think all of us to think. You know, we got this. We're in a World Series, dude. This is great, um, and I like it because I think people will now think of Washington maybe as a city that has more than a corrupt president, a do nothing Congress, and a football team that nobody wants to even pronounce the name of. <laughs> so, win or lose. To the Astros or the Yankees, I think this is a great moment for, for Washington. So thank you, Addie Baird, BuzzFeed. Thank you. Thank you, Jen Bendry from HuffPost and Chris Catalogo from Politico. Good to have you here. Yes, we'll, thanks, Bill. We'll welcome you back. Uh, we'll round up with a uh, parting shot. Uh, usually I say I caution you that my views expressed in the parting shot are mine only and not necessarily the members of the panel. I dare think that the members of the panel would agree with today's parting shot. Uh, because I just have to say that with the death of Congressman Elijah Cummings, we lost a real giant this week. You know, I've met a lot of senators and members of Congress. Most of them made no more impression on me than a stranger who might sit alongside me on the metro. But Elijah Cummings was different. I never met him without feeling that I was in the presence of greatness. For one thing, his booming voice was nothing less than the voice of God. And he always spoke with determination, passion, and compassion. He had an incredible life story. He embodied the American dream, son of sharecroppers, told as a young man he was too slow-witted to go to law school, but nevertheless went on to become not only a lawyer, but a civil rights leader, a Maryland state legislator, and one of the most powerful members of Congress. But you know, no matter how important he became, Elijah Cummings never forgot and never stopped fighting for the city where he was born and the people of Baltimore that he served so well. In his first speech on the floor of Congress in April 1996, Elijah Cummings summed up his mission in politics as simply to empower people. It was a goal to which he said he would dedicate every minute of his life, 
And then he then recited a little poem by Karen Mitchell. Quote, I only have a minute, 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, I did not choose it, but I know that I must use it. Give account if I abuse it, suffer if I lose it. Only a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. Yep, and Elijah Cummings made good use of every minute of his life to make this a better country. His passing is a great loss for the people of Maryland and for all of us Americans. And that's our roundtable and podcast again for today. Thanks again, Eddie Baird. Thank you, Jen. And thank you, Chris. And thanks to all of you for listening. And remember, we ask you a great big favor, which is, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. You do so by just going to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn. Um, Search for the Bill Press Pod. Subscribe. And then scroll down and give us a big, fat five-star review. I can't tell you how important that is. The more subscribers, the more reviews, the more people we can reach every week. It's as simple as that. So thanks again for joining us. And be sure to check out our next podcast, or maybe we should call it a podcast, because we're going to be checking up on the latest with the legalization of marijuana. How many states have legalized the recreational use of pot? How's it working out? And how soon will pot be legal nationwide? That's coming up next. Meanwhile, stay strong and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.